welcome to Eurovision Song Context. This is a podcast that tries to get to the bottom of taste, identity, and the ins and outs of ESC. I'm Bradley, and I'm joined today by Dr. Zoe J. She's an academic and founder of the Eurovisionaries Project. We'll talk about what it means to be a Eurovision fan diplomat, and then chat about some iconic submissions from 2012 and 2016, including Light Sound, Dami Im, and Francesca Michelin. I always encourage you to go to the show page at eurovisionsongcontext.fireside.fm and watch the submissions before we talk about them. Welcome, Zoe. Hi, thank you for having me. Excellent. And... I am really excited about this project that you have called Eurovisionaries. I am excited about it too. (laughs) Yay! Can you explain to me a bit what it's about? Yeah, so it's basically a project about fans as participants in cultural diplomacy. So Eurovision is sort of really valuable for governments and tourism bodies and national broadcasters as this sort of site of cultural diplomacy. It's where countries can present themselves in very positive ways. It's like, look how fun and cool we are. Come and travel in Germany or Finland or Australia or wherever um, because you know the musicians and stuff that we love. But in international relations, which is the the background, my research hasn't sort of focused on the, the sort of audience side of that. The focus is more on how governments represent themselves and what, how countries sell themselves internationally and not so much on whether people on the receiving end of those messages are picking up what's being put down So and whether they're creating their own stories and doing their own forms of cultural diplomacy. So I'm really interested in things like the way fans um, learn the languages of the songs that they love and they see places in the beautiful Eurovision postcards and go, I want to go there and make German black forest cake because I love the German song or something, <laughs> for, like themed food parties for their Eurovision watching. And so there's all sorts of different layers of that kind of cultural exchange that are going on in like whether you watch the contest at home or whether you are watching it live and meeting people there for the first time. It's a really cool kind of melting pot, I guess, of different ways of meeting people from around the world. And so I am interested in the politics of that and who is doing that and what it means to them and whether they're sort of registering it as a political act or it's just fun or something in between. Do you think that there's a difference between like dedicated Eurovision fans, right? The kind of people that might go to Eurovision and like the casual house party Eurovision fan experience. Cause I think if you host like a semi ironic, like let's say you're living in a European capital and you're like, Oh, Eurovision time is coming around. Let's just have a house party. Cause it's like a trashy thing. We all love, or at least everyone knows what it is and they've got childhood memories. I think there's a chance that you're accidentally thrust into being a representative of your whole entire country? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that being thrust into a thing happens to mega fans as well. It happens in instances like people always apologize to me for not liking the Australian song. And I'm like, that's fine. I'm, I didn't write it. I'm, 
not offended that you don't like it. I'm not like the head of delegation at SBS. It's fine. So even those of us who love it get sort of thrust into these representative positions. We have to apologize when our songs are cringe or like apologize when that, um, like a stage crasher runs on stage and attacks Jamala wearing an Australian flag and oh all no, the Australians I go. About that. <laughs> oh no. I think it's really important to contextualize what that felt like at what was about six o'clock in the morning in Australia. <laughs> we were all watching that live and this guy gets up wearing a flag and he drops his dax and we were like, oh my God, of course that was an Australian. And it wasn't in the end, it was a Ukrainian comedian but it was just so plausible that it would be an Australian that we didn't need to doubt it and so like at the time everyone was really apologetic about it and so much to say I think also because when you say plausible I think that what you mean is that that um leans into the what people perceive as being the Australian personality yeah yeah got this reputation as like we're very friendly and laid back but we're also party animals. I think probably British people could plausibly have been involved in an incident like that as well with their football hooligan culture. But it's an example of how Eurovision fans are clearly aware of international reputations. We know what our countries look like to other people and we know which bits of that are maybe things we shouldn't be quite so proud of. And more importantly, people feel like they have the authority to make diplomatic gestures and apologies and things when those sort of situations arise. I've studied some of the economics around, you know, Eurovision tourism. And I think that the kind of the, the, the summary that I've read is that, for example, if you already want to go to a country, then, you know, if Eurovision, if you already wanted to go to London, uh, you know, a London Eurovision would be a big tourism boost. But mm. if you didn't already want to go to that country, it's not a big tourism boost. Like people that didn't already want to go to Baku will not sign up to go to Baku. So I wonder if that's the same with like learning about other cultures. Like I wonder how, how many, how much of somebody's preconceived ideas that are all mm. boxed up that we have about every culture are kind of surmountable by fans, I guess is my question. I think I should start by saying I am in the extremely early days of this research project, so I yeah. haven't actually like spoken to people yet. Most yeah. of what I have been doing is setting up the project website. <laughs> um, so if you're listening, please visit the website because I've put a lot of time into it. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful website. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I've spent many hours on it, too many probably. But, yeah, I think you are right that um, there is a certain confirmation bias. Yes. Yeah. 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 For Eurovision fans, like any excuse to go to any Eurovision is more than enough. And if it <laughs> coincides with a place that you also want to go, then it's like, well, great. Obviously I will go out of my way to go to Liverpool or Turin or wherever. But there are also, I think, maybe surprises. You might see a postcard and think, oh, that place looks more beautiful than I would have anticipated like that place doesn't sort of match my preconceived notion of a former Soviet country as grey and concrete. It actually looks very beautiful and colourful. So I would like to go there and learn more about it. Do you have any examples from your own experience? You've seen a postcard and you've been like, oh, that looks amazing. I have an example from my very first ever Eurovision. In 2012, I 
decided I wanted to make Eurovision part of my personality. I was sort of aware of it, but had never watched one before and was like, that sounds like a cool thing to be interested in. I was 22 at the time, so I was casting around for ways to make myself cooler than I was, which wasn't very... Um, <laughs> so I thought, I'll make Eurovision my thing. That will be fun. So I cajoled my housemates into sitting around and watching it with me. And we were watching Iceland. Um, it was Greta Salome and Yonsi and Never Forget, the beautiful song with the violin. Mm-hmm. Um, and my housemate said, oh, I've been to Iceland on a holiday. And we were like, what? Really? What was it like? Tell us about it. Um, and so he told us about like a family road trip and whale sightings and that stinky fermented fish thing. Um, yeah. So... He just like made it sound really fun and interesting. And then at the end of the year, I finished my university degree and wanted to go traveling in Europe. And I remembered this conversation and was like, I want to go to Iceland. That just sounded like the coolest place in the world. And so I did. So it like quite literally shaped my first encounter with Europe because I don't think I would have picked it if I hadn't sort of had that in the back of my mind. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Yeah, so I guess... If we come with preconceived notions about a lot of countries, right, we just already know what they're about, air quotes, know what they're about. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I don't, yeah, fine. Maybe there's like the countries that are kind of ambiguous or we don't think about a lot or we don't have a lot of those stereotypes already built in. There's a greater chance for knowledge there. There's like a you know, big chance to leverage that, especially with people that you that you might randomly meet or you don't know or yeah. Yeah, I think so. And I think the the music itself is often the entry point, not necessarily something like the postcard or whoever the host is, but like you just sort of get super obsessed with someone like Joker out and suddenly you know everything <laughs> there is to know about Slovenia. Because, Hypothetically. Yeah. You're trying to find out where they live so you can go and marry them. Hypothetically. I yeah, um hypothetically. Yeah, it's funny you should mention Joker Out because I thought that one of your entries that you've submitted Light Sound reminds me a bit of Joker Out. I think in that um oh, I wouldn't call it a boy band kind of a thing. Um approachable male lead singer kind of yeah. kind of vibe. I'm going to go with that. Yeah. I also wonder about the branding with the postcards uh, just from like a national branding point of view. I mean, this year, because this year was a little bit different, but they had, you know, like a library in England and a library mm. wherever else, you know. And so it was like, look, we're like you. So they were different. To me, they were a little bit patronizing, like, oh, we have libraries too. And oh, we also have gardens. And I was like, I don't know. Oh, I, I really loved them this year. I um, actually gave a talk at a conference earlier this year about those postcards because I think they were a really kind of, they do that thing that Eurovision does really well, which is create this impression of unity and commonality. Whether there is one that exists or not is like the subject of like volumes and volumes of political science books and sociology and history books and stuff. I think the actual connection in practice is questionable, but like Eurovision is very good at visually creating this sort of environment of unity and those postcards were particularly good at doing that because it was like Liverpool or the United Kingdom has this place, Ukraine has a place like this, the the performing country has a place like this. We all 
have these recognizable monuments or libraries or natural places that are distinct to our respective countries, they're all a little bit different. So they are diverse, but they are similar. And so we recognize the emotional attachment to those places because we have our own emotional attachments to those places in our own homes. Yeah. I mean, it reminds me of this book that I'm sure you've read called Imagined Communities. Mm, exactly. Yeah. So like yeah. The, the thesis of this book is that like when you create a nation, you have to have an imagined uh, national character, whether that's through an anthem or a flag um, and through like place naming, especially like, you know, a New Yorker can imagine that there's an old York somewhere and that they... <laughs> they share those same characteristics of, you know, they, you can imagine that you are, that there is someone sitting in old, old York, if you're in New York and that you share something with those people. So it's this idea yeah. that you, you will never know more than X number of people from your nation. You'll know 30 or 40 people of your, of your compatriots, but you assume that all X number of them, the whole population shares a, a national identity, which may or may not be real. Yeah. Popular culture is so important in like, for governments and stuff in terms of facilitating that imagination and making it real. Cause like the millions of people that live in the U S or the 25 million people that live in Australia or the 5 million people that live in fin Finland obviously don't all know each other and obviously don't have everything in common with each other. They just can't because that's too many people, but things like music and stories and film and stuff, are so important for creating that, that like that's everyone's sort of access point into that imagination a lot of the time. Yeah. And so I think the postcards are a version of that kind of thing. It's like an entry point into each country's imagined community, I guess. Yeah, for sure. And I guess if I thought about it in that way, I might think about Eurovision as being its own nation. I've read your website and it says that the Eurovisionaries project asks how the language, symbols, gestures, and practices fans use shaped, shape their interactions with the contest, its participating countries, and each other, and how these interactions shape cultural relations in and beyond Europe. So just um, a bit about the language, symbols, gestures, and practices. Yeah, what are some tools that a, that a, a Eurovision diplomat might have? There are a few things I think that people can do. Um, I mean, it, the phrasing there is quite broad because I don't quite know what I'm going to find yet and I want to keep it open so I'm not accidentally closing myself off to stuff that is interesting to the people I end up working with. But um, like what strikes me as interesting at Eurovisions at home, um, which is predominantly how I have watched the contest because at home being Australia. Have, yeah, originally yeah. Australia, now in Finland. Um, so Australia was always too far to go to Eurovisions for me. So it was always an at-home situation. And until 2014, it was a delayed the night afterwards situation. So you had to stay off social media to find out, <laughs> to avoid finding out who won. Can I ask, do you mean at home with family, at home with other Eurovision fans, at home with other Australians that are just interested because it's a thing that happens once a year? Like I'm just gauging the level of fandom. For me, it has always been with friends. Um, it wasn't something my family watched. Um, my parents are baffled that I'm so interested in it. They're like, what is this? Um, what happened to all that human rights research you used to do? <laughs> 
so it's always been a friend-based thing for me, but I know a lot of other Australians, it's either friends or like there's a very strong sort of family connection for a lot of people, especially for slightly older Eurovision fans, people who've been watching it for longer. So in terms of gauging how much of a fan I am, actually for a long time I was really reluctant to call myself one because I wasn't one of those people who knew who came seventh in the telly vote in the second semifinal in... 1964. Yeah, exactly. Um, I couldn't recall that kind of stuff. I'm better at it now for the Eurovisions that I do know, so maybe I can tell you 2012 kind of data, but it's just uh-huh. that it was... An, like it wasn't something I had seen, so I, I loved it and I enjoyed it, but for a long time I didn't call myself a fan. I think that's a um, lot of people. I think that's yeah. a lot of people, yeah. Yeah, I've forgotten your original question. What are the tools of a fan diplomat? Yeah, there's there's that kind of everyday small-scale stuff like learning languages and baking and Googling stuff about a country, reading the Wikipedia page of a country's history. And then that sort of, I think, exists on a continuum with slightly more recognisably political kind of stuff. So at the other end you have things like covering yourself in a flag as a cape or painting your face in the the colours of your country. And perhaps if you are especially quite embedded in a fan community, you're a member of one of the official fan organisations, then you might be more actively representative of your your country because you are participating in things like the the Eurovision Second Chance competition. So you're sort of actively taking on this, this role as kind of an alternative history for your nation, basically, where you get to sort of give them another chance. And then there's like maybe podcast hosts, like you get to sort of steer conversations around what kind of politics or identities come up in conversations about Eurovision and stuff. So there's quite a broad continuum of stuff that exists in these everyday situations. And then there's some more really overt diplomatic stuff like people issuing apologies when stage divers wear Australian flags on stage. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. And I I guess like Eurovision, part of the reason I like it is that so much of it seems to be guided by the fandom. You know, it's not like a thing that is really covered in a serious way by by a lot of quote unquote real press or whatever else. It's, Mm. It's a curiosity, I think, for most people as opposed to a serious thing, right? Yeah, and the EBU seems to quite like working with the fans, or at least the national broadcasters seem to get a lot out of it because it's it's free labour in a lot of ways for them. They don't have to send paid journalists because fans will write things for them a lot of the time, which is an interesting economic relation. But um, you do get really like detailed, insightful knowledge from people who care about the work that's being done. Yeah, there's that. And then I think if you were, for example, the, a member of your OGAE or, or whatever else, there's being a diplomat for your country, but also being a diplomat for Eurovision. Mm. Right. So if, if you imagine, yeah. if like, I'm, I'm just going with this thing where I now imagine people as a dual citizen, like they're kind of like part of the Eurovision world citizenry and they're part of their own national citizenry. And in that, in that case, I, I know a lot of people that, uh, you know, they live overseas and they're like, you know, I'm from whatever country and you also have to see Eurovision, right? Like I can, you, you might be that way in Finland. 
yeah, I find uh, since moving to Finland, I have become much more like Australian, I think, yeah, in a way yeah. I did not um, anticipate being. I am quite surprised by it. it um, in what ways? Sometimes, I don't know, I think sometimes I play up my accent to tease people a little because people are often like, oh, it's quite mild for an Australian accent and I will Is it? What it. kind of Australians are moving to Finland? <laughs> uh, well, not many of <laughs> There's not a lot of Australians Fair in enough, Finland yeah. as far as I know, but people are sometimes like, oh, are you from New Zealand? And I'm like, how dare you? Yeah, <laughs> but also, yeah. thank you. <laughs> I have never been particularly nationalist. I am not a person who is attached to an Australian national identity in that kind of structured, imagined community kind of way. I don't really care about Australian football and meat pies. I eat Vegemite, but only reluctantly. It's not something I would actively proudly go around telling people, but it comes up in conversations in Finland a bit more than I was sort of expecting it to because it comes up through Eurovision and people ask about the Australian entrance and why is Australia in Eurovision is... The question I get most. <laughs> Do they say that in a curious way or like an angry way? Eurovision is definitely a day where everybody can be proud. Yeah, and I think it does this thing to a lot of people who would not otherwise consider themselves particularly nationalist or attached to a national identity. And by virtue of making artists represent their countries, it puts fans in positions of also representing their countries. You sort of suddenly are rooting for your home country in the same way that you do it, like the Olympics or the World Cup. You're suddenly in this position where the country is the key to the success of the person you love, the song that you love or whatever. And so you do adopt these sort of expressions of nationalism that you otherwise would be quite uncomfortable doing because that is how the sort of nature of the competition is structured. So it encourages you to do that kind of stuff and say yay go Australia and wear a flag or or make or make excuses for them right this is the, yeah. often the case in Britain where you're like oh yeah. well it's just not something we do or he's a nice bloke you know you'd you'd have a beer with whoever the contestant is I won't name names but um <laughs> yeah there's that moment where you're not so proud you know like I don't know like mm. in the Olympics you know when a hurdler trips over a hurdle and knocks down 10 you know that Mm. You on a normal day you might be oh that's just a rubbish athlete unless the person's from your country when you're like oh that's just rotten luck and you feel that emotion yeah. toward them yeah yeah and then you're like oh it wasn't their fault they had a bad day their hurdle was higher than everyone else's yeah exactly yeah. exactly yeah. exactly why did you fall in love with light sound because he's on your website yeah, I um, you even included I, him on the website. So we we are talking about a 2012 entry. Please go watch it. We are the heroes. Light <laughs> sound. Why this band? Why this song? Why this lead singer? Why? There's a fairly embarrassing story to this song choice, and the the short version of it is I was 22 and horny. Um, the the longer <laughs> version, the maybe more like I don't know if this is a family friendly podcast. They maybe shouldn't have. No, I think, I think, I think, horny, I think horny is, uh, is, that's what I was. I mean, and also who that's watching Eurovision, I'm well out of the, the average age. No, maybe I'm not age demographic for Eurovision, but, um, yeah. How is that not relevant to Eurovision? I mean, it's got a young crowd, like 
yeah. sex sells. That's part of Eurovision. That is part of Monoskin's success. That's part of yeah, like hormones. Hormones success. are a big driver in Eurovision, so I'm fine with that. Yeah, yeah. So the the sort of longer version of that story, I guess, is um, so I was back on the couch in 2012 with my friends for semi final two after the Iceland story. <laughs> I just fell madly, obscenely in lust with this guy I just I saw him on stage and was like that man is deeply attractive and I like I'm not sure he is in hindsight like my (laughs) my personal my personal tastes have evolved in the last sort of 12 years I think but at the time I was like this guy is just the most beautiful male specimen I have ever seen I just he looks like a young sort of chain mail clad Brendan Fraser I think um, oh but- you're ruining it for oh my gosh <laughs> I can't believe you've just done this to me because oh you did me wrong Zoe you oh, did me I'm wrong sorry. what have I dirty. done I watched this entry for the first time and yeah he is in chain mail which is amazing chain mail is an amazing choice handmade I assume by some artisan in Belarus <laughs> some like partial knits I was getting definitely like Mad Max or Waterworld vibes mm. from like this costuming um I don't know some apocalyptic scenario I will talk more about the song later however the lead singer if you hold up your hand and just cover his head the bottom is very warrior. He's a muscular guy. It is, yeah. it is. And then if you just cover the bottom of him and just see his head, it's very Eurovision in that he is very squeaky clean. He's got like the perfect jawline, mm-hmm. flawless pores, amazing hair, wonderful product in said amazing hair. And I think this might be one of the most Eurovision-y Eurovision songs in that also the lyrics seem to me to be created in some kind of perfect sausage factory Eurovision um, lab. And yeah, I had a massive crush on Brendan Fraser, uh, the massivest of massive crushes on <laughs> Brendan Fraser. And now that you've said that they're similar, I am, um, I am at a loss. I'm at a loss I'm now. Very sorry. My apologies. <laughs> now, I am now going to see this song with just like Brendan Fraser from Encino Man kind of. Mm spray painted over this guy's yeah this is where I am now um that's gonna play tricks on me but that's fine yeah but I think you're right that it's a very polished song in a way that is not good like like I chose this song partly because it's sort of a deep dive I didn't think anyone else would pick it and partly because I know just how objectively bad a song it is it's really like it's somehow like the missing link between the Backstreet Boys and the Kings of Leon. Yeah. (laughs) It's it's sort of boy band meets Christian rock in the most overproduced way possible. And Dimitri, the lead singer, like when you're watching the music video, he does like he throws his arm up in the air in this punch several times, but it's just the most sort of anemic punch I've ever seen. It looks like he learned how to do it from a TED talk rather than from like out of any sort of deep passion for the music. <laughs> it's really like, and now I do this at this moment because the choreographer told me to do it and not like, yeah, I'm feeling the music and I love this song. It's just really staged. Yeah, he needed he needed to practice more to have that enter into muscle memory because he was like thinking yeah. about, you know, he's like, what, you know, he's, mm. he's thinking about some choreography maybe a little bit too much. Yeah, he looks uncomfortable while he's doing it. But I didn't see that as a 22-year-old. All I saw was 
muscles and face and that haircut that makes him look like a windswept horse. The background singer is amazing. The background, the bassist, I think he's got some mm. amazing hair that might, it's a little bit Zoolander, but that's mm, like it's... also a lot of Eurovision, which is fine. I think it's very 2006 kind of era hair and it's just maybe... Pre-man bun. The man bun yeah, had not hit the world the, yet. and the, the blonde one with that kind of yeah, helmet head. Yes, that's him. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. He's, he's yeah like, I think his name is Jacopo something. Clearly his name is Jacopo. Yeah, he's Italian. Yes, that's But why, it's yeah. very, it's slightly dated. It would have done very well at Eurovision, I think, four or five years earlier than it arrived. I think a lot of people have that experience of loving a naff song while realizing it's naff. Yeah, and my musical taste has always leaned towards that kind of very naff pop. I also really like Soldiers of Love from Denmark in 2016 for a similar reason. It's just like I wouldn't play it to my cool friends in public. I wouldn't put it on a playlist at a house party or something, but I listen to it because it makes me happy. I feel like... uh... So I'm quarter Danish. And um, again, there's a country that I, because my, one, my you know grandparent was Danish, I have no ties, right? I didn't grow up with a Danish mm. parent, so I don't speak Danish. I've got a warm spot for Denmark. And I feel that they always do this to me. I feel like, mm. I feel like, I feel like Denmark does this to me uh, just reliably. Yeah. Denmark are the champions of the NAF pop song. I'm not sure the Danish population is watching the same Eurovision as the rest of us. <laughs> and I want to love them. I want to love them desperately, yeah. whether it's like a girl with a balloon singing about world peace or whatever it is, or, or Riley, was it, it was Riley last yeah, year, Yeah, with the it? hearts and everything. That yeah. looked like it belonged at junior Eurovision more than the adult one. But I want to subscribe to whatever world they're living in. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, uh, that's, yeah that sounds great. That yeah, sounds great. It's all very cosy. It's very hygge. So it is very <laughs> uh, what is your, what's your taste now in Eurovision? So there's a, there's a, let's imagine that, you know, 2024 comes out with like a really great boy band. Well, they have to be like ridiculously handsome in that very clean kind of way. Obviously we mm. can't have scruffy. No, my tastes have, are quite different or like they have matured, I suppose. So I still, I have a very soft spot for those kind of cringe overproduced boy band kind of songs but my other sort of musical tastes lie in the really interesting genre bending kind of stuff so I really like the the rock side of Eurovision and the electronic stuff and so I was very nuts for Carrier this year and I like Monoskin and what about Luke Black? Luke Black I love also yeah. and who are the the I've forgotten their name we are Domi the Czech oh um, yeah yeah ones. yeah 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 my husband had, I should probably not be mentioning this, but he doesn't listen, so that's fine. <laughs> had some kind of bromance with like Pasha Parfeni. I feel like you see the people Ooh. you love in a way, because like I, I don't know you, but now I know you more <laughs> through through your tastes, right? Mm. And sometimes I don't expect certain things like uh, Pasha Parfeni to me, who is like, a Russell Brand from the early aughts, man bun, hippie mm. kind of a thing. Skinny jeans. Yeah. yeah, yeah, the kind of longish hair, kind of a kind of a Jesus kind of a look. Mm. You know, with like some harem pants, like a man wearing harem pants. Mm. Yes, 
I, I did not see my spouse as being that. I did not see it going that way. You know, I didn't <laughs> think he would be somebody you wanted to have a beer with. But I also was unaware that Pasha Profeni had a completely, he's been to Eurovision before and had a completely different look. Oh, I love it when they surprise you and you're like, oh, I didn't know that person was there. Yeah, like Pasha yeah. Profeni only exists for me in his current iteration. But um, yeah. and, and I do wonder if countries kind of think about this as they think about their their artists' identities as they're created, because clearly these are created to some extent, right? Mm. So I wonder how much national thought goes into that, right? It must depend on the country and the broadcaster and what their music scene is like in general, because like Sweden obviously has a musical type because the entire global pop industry is Swedish produced. Finland has a very clear musical type that is like Finland is like the death cap music capital, like death metal capital of the world or something. Um, everyone's very into metal because it's cold all the time. Everyone is miserable. You've got to thrash to keep warm. For example, I thought that May Muller was a... Hmm real stereotypical certain kind of British person. Yes, I know what you mean. I also think she's a very stereotypical young person. This is how old I am getting increasingly. She's got very Gen Z kind of affects to her, the way she moves and like I don't know how to describe it in words rather than visuals, but the way she like flicks her fingers with her very well done nails. No, I think May Muller to me, she does the thing that Lily Allen to me used to do and struck me as very mm. British as like, I don't know, like hard and worldly and has got a lot of attitude and is also very sleek. Like her, her couture is amazing. So I don't know, like, I think that that must be very, somebody has curated that I think for her. Mm. For example, Sam Ryder is kind of also a very typical British person, but curated in a different direction. Yeah, he's a much more like approachable guy you have a beer with kind of a Brit. Whereas like I, I see exactly what you mean with Mamela. I don't know how to articulate it, but yeah. The, I get Essex vibes there. I said it. Yeah, I get Essex vibes. I get Essex yeah. vibes. I get, Yeah. It's like a a refined version of the Ladette. It's like yes, they're a bit like they're brassy and they will speak truth to power and and like resist authority, but they're also sort of cute and fun and like worldly and well dressed. Yeah, and she's gonna put down X number of drinks and she's gonna be able to keep up with yeah. the boys in a pub yeah. and yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I don't know if that's like that's her and they've souped it up or whatever. But the point is, is that I think about both of these people as being kind of examples of their nationhood, of their country, hmm. um, in a way that I kind of don't consider some entrance, although that just might be a matter of ignorance, right? Like maybe maybe some of these songs come out from wherever and, and locals think like, oh yeah, that person, like I know who that person is. I get that. They represent us. Yeah, I think that requires a lot of cultural context. You sort of have to know a place to be able to know whether something is sort of of a place and especially whether it's sort of authentic or something that's been manufactured by a broadcasting team. Like Carrier's song is very 
to me, it's a very Finnish song. A lot of people are like, oh, this joke song about getting drunk. I'm like, no, but that's what Finnish people are really like a lot of the time. They're so quiet and reserved all of the time. But the minute you put a beer in their hands, they go nuts. And you're like, oh, that's where their personality is. Which is not to say that they don't have personalities the rest of the time. But yeah, they're, they're not very, allowed like, to, yeah, they're, they're constrained. Yeah. yeah, they just don't want to bother other people. So they keep to themselves and it takes a long time to warm them up. Very shy. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And so cha-cha-cha is such a perfect sort of musical representation of that. That to me, I'm like, yes, that's, that is Finland in a song. But to other people that doesn't read that way maybe because they don't sort of have that context mm. or Voyager this year from Australia is yeah. a very Australian song to me that is very heavily influenced by the types of Australian music that I grew up listening to and hearing at music festivals and stuff but that's not a context that other people necessarily have because like a lot of that Australian music that I love is not the Australian music that sort of became famous internationally I feel like it became famous internationally, like in the 80s, mm, in the mid yeah, to late like, 80s, like some of whatever seeped into popular English speaking culture, like Australia had a big impact, like from maybe like 1987 to 1992 with that kind of sound that yeah. everyone wanted to have. But it, you know, it kind of. Yeah, there's like ACDC or like in the more 80s synth kind of yes. stuff. There's Ice House, I think, is similar kind of vibes to Voyager in some ways but Voyager also very similar to like the presets who I don't think are sort of super well known outside of Australia but were one of my favorite sort of electro groups in the 2000s oh I've got a new thing to listen to now yeah um what, strong recommend I, I have to ask because I have to ask you are from Tasmania yeah yeah I am from Nipaluna, um, otherwise more commonly known in English as Hobart. Nipaluna is the traditional Palawa name. Amazing. So I assume there's also part of you that has grown up not being Australian. I mean, I don't know the politics around that, but I, I assume that Tasmania is kind of its own thing. Tasmania is a state. It is just a regular, boring old state in the same way that North Carolina is. Is it though, or is it more like Alaska or Hawaii? Well, it's probably more like Alaska or Hawaii, but like politically, sort of constitutionally, it's no different from New South Wales or Queensland. But how but... about culturally? When someone says, you know, the, the way that British people you say, they say when they go overseas, Welsh people say, well, I'm British, but I'm, I'm like Welsh or I'm British, but I'm like, I'm Scottish. Right. And they, they feel the need to, is that the same way that being Tasmanian is? I think it depends on which Tasmanian you speak to. Um, okay. There aren't a lot of us. You can speak to all 12 of us in a right, single day. That's it. There's about 500,000 people in Tasmania. So it's slightly bigger than Iceland. It depends. I usually tell people I am Tasmanian before I'm, I tell them I'm Australian because of that thing about like Australia isn't a sort of an entity that means much to me, but Tasmania is, that's a much more coherent place to me because it's much smaller. It's an island, so it's fairly self-contained. Yeah. Um, it has very distinct wildlife compared to mainland Australia. It's a lot further south, so it's colder. It's greener. Um, it looks a little bit more like New Zealand, but it's distinct from that. Also, it's got its own colonial and much, much older Indigenous history. So it is 
um, like on a day-to-day kind of level, it's the same as anywhere else in Australia, but in its sort of imagination and what it feels like to be from that place, I think it varies a little bit. So you might be a person that doesn't have to imagine your community. You have some chance of like the people of San Marino or the people of uh, the Canary Islands or something like that. You <laughs> might, you have some off chance of actually knowing, you know. Maybe. I mean, we still have, uh, I think no matter where you live, like the smallest place in the world will still have its own little regional disputes. And so like there are differences in Tasmanian identity from whether you are from the South or the North or the Northwest. Those are very distinct regions, even though they're all only a few hours drive away from each other and your identity and your relationship to that place is obviously very different. Whether you are a person from like settler heritage, like my family are. Yep technically from some of the original convicts who were sent there to establish the settler colony. So I like have this direct lineage to the colonialism and genocide of the, the Palawa people, the Tasmanian Aboriginal people. And so they obviously have a very different connection to the land and to the concept of Tasmania than I do. So it's small and has some things that are more graspable for people, but in other ways, it's a very different kind of place for everyone. Bring it back to sort of Eurovision, yeah, imagine yeah, community yeah. stuff, like all those sort of political identities are personal first and foremost. Like they mean, they have obvious political connotations and who like attaches themselves to what identities or what sort of national narratives resonate with people depends on their individual relationship to that place and to that sort of political overarching institution. And so it's like that idea that we have something in common is a very top-down understanding. I think it's very sort of this idea that we have a singular national identity is something that's driven by nation states. But in reality, everyone has very different and overlapping and incoherent identities. So I am a Eurovision fan, but I'm also sometimes uncomfortable telling myself or telling other people that I'm a Eurovision fan because maybe they're more of a fan and I'm worried they'll judge me for not being enough of one. I am Tasmanian, but if I'm speaking to Americans, I often say I'm Australian because I think they won't know where Tasmania is. So our identities are relational. I think they're very fluid and it depends who you are talking to, which aspect of your identity you sort of present to them. Idea of nationhood of... um you know, drawing a border on a map and, you know, the experiment of saying that we're all like this within these borders and other people are all like that. While that's a human um, impulse, it's also like very post-World War One-ish. I don't know, this idea that, you know, Europe has been divided into, into blocks and everyone mm-hmm. on this side is, is this way and everyone on the other side is kind of some other different way. Yeah, that national identity stuff is very recent historically. In my international relations lecture, lectures when I was a student, we were taught that like the Treaty of Westphalia in, uh, oh God, I've forgotten when it was. Uh, they'll have to revoke my IR degree, but like in the 16th century, 1568, I think is when it I also have was, an IR degree and do not remember it. So just uh, it's putting not that important. olive branch out there. Yeah, fine. Yeah. We don't need to know it. Who cares? You can Google it. But we're sort of taught that's the foundation of the nation state. And it sort of is in a very tiny sort of portion of Europe for a couple of countries, they drew some boundaries, but like 
the idea of nationalism is quite a recent, that's sort of like a 19th century project for a lot of places. But it's um, taken off. That has worked. Yeah. Even if, even if, even if people do mm. or don't believe kind of like that their national identity is accurate or that it represents them or that they'd go and fight and die for it or that they're going to sing the anthem, you know, the idea of nationhood has definitely taken off. Yeah. And how it is used depends on the context it is used in. So which nationalisms are sort of okay and which ones are problematic are like varies significantly. Like there's a huge difference between um, like American nationalism or British nationalism as like those are huge, powerful countries with sort of long imperial history. So when they talk about those countries being great, everyone starts to get a little bit nervous because they're like, okay, well, what are you going to invade now? When a country like Finland, uh, which was um, first sort of incorporated into the Swedish empire and then into the Russian empire and then finally was liberated in 1918, like it's a very different kind of nationalism in that historical context because it was about like breaking off the shackles of imperialism or like the countries that were colonised by European countries, by the British and the French and the Italians and the Belgians in Africa use nationalism and regional identity. So we are African countries, we are South African. Um, we are not Rhodesia, we're Zimbabwe. Like they're, it's a very different type of nationalism because it's being used to sort of overthrow an even Yeah, it's like what, we're, what, we're, what we can definitely tell you what we're not, right? Yeah, or like Ukraine is fighting, like uses nationalism very effectively at Eurovision in a Eurovision context as a like a stand against the invasion. Um, Palestine can use their own kind of national narratives to try and fight back against Israeli narratives. Um, so it totally depends on the context, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, this is some very deep political stuff. I know, I, I don't, it might get edited. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I do have to ask just because, just to put you on the spot as being like the only Australian that can answer this. So um, there you go. <laughs> so as I understood it, um, Australia's uh, participation in Eurovision was supposed to go until last year, big long contract mm. um, that ended last year. So Voyager would have been the last guaranteed group participating this year, Australia will participate again, but now this might be the last year. What is Australia's future, Zoe? It, oh, God. Guarant- I wish guarantee I knew. I wish Australia I knew. in Eurovision. That's all I'm saying. Um, I would love there to be more Australia in Eurovision. I hope there is. Um, I saw um, Aussie Vision re- were reporting, I think, that Australia, the, the SBS, the Australian broadcaster, is still sort of in negotiations and is sort of, keen to continue and so it sounds like they're probably I don't know ironing out whatever kinks need to be ironed out I don't know what's involved in those kind of negotiations surely it's just like hey we want to be there and we're willing to pay the fee like yeah, and no one has to come difficult. here if we win like I don't yeah, know yeah we we promise we'll let Germany host if we win and or we'll send someone who comes second so it'll be fine like I, I don't know what the behind the scenes nature of it is, but I really hope that Australia continues. But yeah. we did until um, our first several years in the contest, we had to wait year on year like this. So that five year contract that we had that ended this year. Yeah, I'm nervous. I like certainty that, in my life. 
yeah, that sort of that only came into effect in 2018. And so for the first sort of two or three years before that, we just sort of sat around nervously waiting at this time of year, hoping that they would announce they were coming back. And it's not totally unprecedented that we don't know. I guess we'll just have to be patient and wait and see. Hey, for technical reasons, we've had to split this episode into two. To carry on listening to my conversation with Dr. Zoe J, move on to the next episode.